1: President and CEO of the Muthi Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon on the topic of the impact of the Department of State visa bulletin and forward movement of numbers, the impact for you as employers or employees, and what this means. Joining me for today's teleconference are my co-panelists, the esteemed Muthi Law Firm managing attorney, Aaron Finkelstein, many of you have heard before, who's been with the firm for over 21 years. Uh, we also have Chris Drynan, a senior attorney, who's had, uh, I think, over 30 years immigration law experience also, at least certainly over 20, 11 of which is at the multi Law Firm. Truly brilliant, bright, knowledgeable colleagues of mine who are here to discuss the visa bulletin and the impact on both employers and employees. So as many of you understand, an important consideration for employers who hire workers using non-immigrant status like the H1, the L1, or even F1 OPT students is the possibility of applying in the future for the green card for those workers. Obviously, this is an important factor to attract and retain employees. In the past year, primarily because of the COVID uh, pandemic there have been important developments with respect to green card processing, movement of priority dates, etc. A little background for the vast number of green card applicants who are born in India. The green card process, as we all know, is long and frustrating. And because U.S. immigration law limits the number of employment-based green cards that are issued to each country for each fiscal year, to only 7% of the total allocated 140,000 in each employment-based category. Applicants from very heavily populated countries like China and India, and India more affected because we have a lot more employment-based applicants, have to literally wait for years, if not decades, to receive the approval of the permanent residency. Again, the movement of priority dates is based on the u.s department of state visa bulletin that is issued each month uh and we at the multi law firm post that on multi.com we talk about the movement we explain what the department of state provides us so a person applying for a permanent residence will receive a priority date which generally with an employment-based case tends to be on the date the labor certification or perm is filed with the department of labor or if it's a direct national interest waiver or EB-1 kind of case, then uh, the date that the I-140 petition is filed with the USCIS. So the visa bulletin, as we know, provides the list of dates, the countries, the nationalities, the movement of dates, dates of filing, final action dates, etc. So with that, I'm going to jump to ask uh, to invite Aaron to talk a little bit about the priority date movement that occurred back. A year ago, in October 2020, and how that will impact what's happening today in October of 2021.
0: Aaron, hi Shiva, thank you. And as Shiva said, and I'm going to reiterate just a little bit. For many years, uh, people born in India have been accustomed to the slow or the non-existent movement of the Indian priority dates because of the enormous backlogs in the India EB-2 employment-based second and 3rd base categories. However, the past year you've seen a, a lot of important developments in this regard. As a result of the near shutdown of the U.S. embassies abroad because of COVID, a huge number of family-based petitions in which we call the FB, the family-based categories, ended up going unused. By law, these unused visa numbers are transferred into the employment-based green card queue. And this resulted in an unexpected influx of additional employment-based green card visas into the pool for issuance out. Now, it's interesting as a footnote is that if you look at rest of the world, ROW, rest of the world, not India, China, and that whole list of the ones that are generally oversubscribed, rest of the world was already current. So when these visa numbers from the family-based cases came into the employment-based category, they essentially directly indicate uh, they directly impacted strongly the countries that were oversubscribed. The most heavily oversubscribed country, of course, was India, so India had a huge positive benefit. So you'll see that SARS starting in October of 2020, which is when the government year starts, the priority dates for Indian nationals rapidly advanced. In both the employment-based EB2 employment-based second base and EB3 and third uh, employment-based uh, third third base categories, this permitted many people in the U.S. who've been waiting for years and years and years, sometimes over 10, 12, 13 years, to be able to file the I-45 application for adjustment of status and to potentially to receive approvals of their applications. For much of the the past year, the employment-based EB-2 and EB-3 priority dates continued to advance, and this was permitting more and more applicants to file the I-485 application for adjustment of status or even to receive their final approvals for their permanent residency for their green cards. As a result, employers have been overwhelmed with employees seeking to file their long-delayed applications for permanent residence. Um, Chris, I know that we talked about the, just the dates becoming current, but it looks like there was something special that happened with the EB-3. Can you tell me about that?
2: That's correct, Aaron, and thank you for asking. Um, one thing that happened in 2020 that was very unusual, that actually happened before this um, influx of employment-based these uh, numbers, was that the, in, uh, the EB-3, the employment-based third preference numbers for India, advanced ahead of the EB-2 numbers, the employment-based second preference. Now, historically, I mean, in the 20-something years I've been doing this, um, second preference, EB-2, has always enjoyed a more favorable cutoff date um, in the monthly monthly visa bulletin than EB-3. Now, in the past year, a little more than a year, the cutoff date for India EB-3 has, has jumped forward, and it's, remained consistently ahead of EB2 um, since at least the August 2020 visa bulletin. And what this has done, it sparked a lot of interest in what we call EB2 to EB3 downgrade filings. And I get asked about a lot about this uh, pretty much every day, frankly. Um, a lot of people have EB2 I-140 approvals, and now they're looking at the visa bulletin saying that actually EB3 is significantly more favorable to them. So what the possibility that gives them is what we call a downgrade case. And a downgrade case is where an employer will take, uh, will will file an I-140 petition in the EB-3 preference based on a PERM labor certification that was approved for a position that requires, that, that, that qualifies under EB-2. In other words, a position that requires at least a master's degree or a bachelor's degree plus five years of progressive work experience. Um, What you can do here is you can take this EB-2 priority date and you can use the exact same labor certification that was already approved potentially many, many years ago and file another EB-3 case, um, which we call a downgrade, and get that approved. And if that's approved, you would qualify in the EB-3 preference, which right now, as as I've been talking about, is much more favorable um, and potentially if you have a priority date that's qualified that qualifies right now, um, if you do the EB-3 downgrade, you could even potentially concurrently file your I-45 application. In other words, your adjustment of status application, which gets you a lot of benefits. That gets you an unrestricted employment card. It gets you advanced parole. Um, and potentially a, a big consideration for employees, it gets you job portability eventually.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. That makes perfect sense, and I think hopefully... Anybody who didn't quite understand what was happening last October with the downgrades, whether it's the employer or individuals, most people who were eligible uh, and who were eligible for the downgrades certainly considered that or did that unless they had family members traveling, etc. But it's been an incredible boon for all of those people. So thank you for that very detailed explanation of what's a downgrade and what, was ha- what happened last October and continued through November uh, of last year, and we were wondering whether when it would stop. So, one of the questions that were routinely asked is Are there any risks in filing the I 140 downgrade case? And what we explain to people most of the time is that the greatest risk tends to be that the employer very well could run into a challenge in satisfying the ability to pay requirement. As with any I-140 petition filed for an employment-based case, the employer must demonstrate that it has the ability to pay the full Department of Labor mandated salary as listed on the PERM labor certification from the date that it was filed or what's called the priority date. Um, Not from the date it was certified because really it's from the date that the PERM was filed. So under normal circumstances, When the I-140 petition is filed shortly after the PERM is approved, the applicable ability to pay period only covers that one or two years. But when it's a downgrade case like what happened in October of 2020, the EB-3 I-140 could very well was filed in most cases many, many years after the PERM labor certification was approved. And if the employer had even one bad year financially during all of that 10 or 12 or 15 years, then potentially it could result in the denial of the I-140 petition, not just the EB-3 downgrade case. Worse still, it could also lead to the USCIS issuing a notice of intention to revoke on the previously approved EB-2 I-140 petition because the law requires the employer to meet the ability to pay from the date the labor certification was filed, the establishment of the priority date, until the permanent residence or I-485 is approved, the green card is approved for the person. So given this, both employers and employees need to be very careful and cautious and understand the ramifications and risks in filing such cases. Although, you know, obviously the employee is eager to file it, but needs to understand what could go wrong in such a case. So now that we've explained the potential risks, Aaron, I'm going to invite you to jump back in and explain what exactly is required for the I-485 application for both the employer and the employee to gather.
0: So, thank you very much, and I just want to make a point is if you look through the criteria for the risks that Sheila was mentioning for the downgrade, if you're with large companies so financial ability doesn't become an issue, you have potentially U.S. degrees help to take alleviate some of the risk because credential evaluations is off the table clear and, un, and un, 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 you know uh, very clearly written and understandable that meet all the criteria experience letters are things that you should vet from completion from top to bottom before you consider a downgrade, but those risks continue to stay uh, very, very prevalent and they're a big issue. Now, filing the I-45 applications, people have been waiting you know, sometimes a decade or more to file these I-45 applications. So they look at it and they say, well, what do I need to do? What type of documentation do you need to support it? Um, So if you look at a general look of when you're filing an I-45 application where you already have an I-140 approval, you're generally gonna be demonstrating your copies of your immigration status documents, like your 797 approvals for your H's, your L's, your I-20s from when you were a student, demonstrating maintenance of status, EAD cards. Uh, if you're working, if you're on H-4, for example, copy of the I-94 entry record, which you can download from the CBP I-94 website. Uh, birth certificate, if you don't have a birth certificate, perhaps a non-availability certificate, a se- or a secondary evidence, and then a non-availability certificate, or if you comply with the Department of State's rule for being born prior to April of 1970, proof that you fit into the, the what it's called, the Foreign Affairs Manual, so that's an exemption for the non-availability certificate, marriage certificate if you're married, um, birth children's birth certificate, and also all the relevant USCIS forms, the 45, 765 is your work authorization, I-131 is your travel document. Sometimes when you file, then you'll get an approval together called a combo card, either for one or two years. Uh, you want to have a completed I-45 supplement J form, which is signed both by the employer and by the employee, which is confirming the continued availability of the work that generally substitutes for what previously was the employer letter at the end. And also if there's been any any incidents with the police, you're going to want to have the police record, which is a true test copy of the court record and the disposition. What was the result of what happened? Um, So that's generally Um, the documents that you would be, that you would, that would be required to be able to file the 45 application. I'm sorry, Sheila, you were saying something.
1: Yeah, I said that's a very comprehensive list, Aaron. Thank you so much for that. And I know that when Aaron's giving you this very detailed list of documents, some of the documents in particular, as we well know, in a country like India, China, many parts of the world, a birth certificate or marriage certificate, which seems so easy to obtain in a country like the United States of America, can be very challenging because many births are not officially recorded. If they're born in smaller towns or villages – the marriage sometimes is under the Hindu Marriage Act just by going around the fire seven times as opposed to a proper legal document in some cases, especially for older people, when people are sponsoring their parents, etc. So we tell people start collecting the documents because some of these documents literally can take years and years and years to gather. Um, and that's why we, once we finish getting, obtaining the I-140 petition approval, we ask the employer and the employee to start to ensure that the employees can start collecting all of this information so that when the priority dates suddenly become current, you're not panicking that you can't file in a short window of time. Um, next, let's jump to the October Visa Bulletin, the implications and the forward movement. And I know it was just recently released in the last week or so or week or two, uh, Chris. Do you want to just give us an update on what's happened with the final action date, the dates of filing, and what this means? and then I'll jump into the predictions for future.
2: Yeah, a lot of people were very interested in the October visa bulletin because it it would really tell us a lot going forward. Um, And it was released a few weeks ago. um, And basically a lot of things of this were unchanged. This was the first visa bulletin for the US government's fiscal year of 2022. um, And also includes some short-term predictions for the future. Um, but the main thing that that's important here is that there was absolutely no movement in the final action chart. Um, the final action chart um, basically governs when people are actually eligible to approve, uh, receive approval for their green cards, um, when they're when they're eligible to get that final final approval they've been waiting for for years. And the final action chart for both the employment and the family-based categories are absolutely unchanged from the september visa bulletin um no forward movement no no retrogression um which i mean was not what we were expecting a few months ago um but it did not retrogress that's the one good thing
1: exactly exactly good point chris uh the predictions that we were thinking because people keep always whenever i do consultations with clients they always say But Ms. Muthi, you've been doing this for 20 or 30 years. You should tell me what will happen. But, you know, in terms of the predictions for future visa bulletins, even last month, just a month ago in early September, Charles Oppenheim, the chief of the Visa Control and Reporting Division at the U.S. Department of State in Washington, D.C., had been predicting continued forward movement in both the EB-2 and the EB-3 categories, given the large number of extra... Uh, visas, immigrant visas that were available. Remember remember, at the beginning of this call, Aaron explained why there were so many unused family-based numbers that spilled over to the employment-based category? Well, so he was predicting that. However, he has recently changed his prediction, apparently based on the heavy downgrade demand with the usage of EB-3 visa numbers. Uh, we believe p- largely because of the literally thousands of people who initially filed E B two cases, then filed E B three last October and November, trying to take advantage so that they could file the forty five for their families. So that is in the future predictions that what we are expecting, um, in long term future predictions, but in the short term predictions there are some other nuances that both Aaron and Chris will discuss with us. So Aaron, let's get started with you and see if Chris can continue.
0: Unlike most practitioners, I was not surprised when he changed his tune and said that EB3 was going to be uh, not moving rapidly forward. I think that he sees visa number movements, but he doesn't see the enormous amount of uh, people from India that were filing huge amounts of uh, constant EB3 downgrades, which is something as practitioners we saw and had the opportunity to see firsthand. Uh, in the October 2021 Visa Bulletin, he included predictions for visa availability for the coming months, and most were consistent with what he previously said. However, for the employment-based third preference category for India, uh, it was much different than what he had predicted before. For EB3 retrogression, he was calling that it may be necessary for both India and China, as uh, possibly as soon as November, moving backwards, not forwards, that means, guys. Similarly, a cutoff may be needed to be imposed next month for all other countries of chargeability in the EB-3 category. Uh, Charlie Oppenheim, Mr. Oppenheim, does a regular YouTube program, and there he explained that there was a, that the pending demand for EB-3 India and China had already exceeded the visa numbers that are available for all fiscal year 2022, which begins on October 1 of 2021 and this was despite the fact that he had expected to have about 290,000 immigrant visa numbers available for the upcoming fiscal year. That, by the way, that's a record high. That's more than double what you would see in any normal uh, calendar year. Uh, Chris, I'm wondering if you can add anything else that he had said or indicated.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Charlie Oppenheim also indicated that he was not, at this point, uh, sure when the retrogression would occur or by, or by how much it would occur. Um, and he said that the goal, uh, with the state department is always, uh, is to have to retrogress only once and to leave open the possibility of moving forward again later in the fiscal year, if they can do that. Now later in his, his YouTube program, um, he was specifically answered the question as to whether he believed that the final action date for EB3 India might advance to March, to a March 2014 cutoff date by the end of the fiscal year. And he said he did not expect that. Um, Again, that's a big change. Uh, he had previously, a few months ago, expected EB3 India to go well beyond that. Um, so this, this, things have changed. I mean, there has been a, a huge number of EB3 downgrades, and I think we're starting to see the results from that. Um, he also said that for the employment-based second preference category, the cutoff dates for both China and India uh, each month may move up by several months. Um, and it's expected to remain current for other countries of chargeability, in other words, other than China and India. Um, The employment-based first preference category is expected to remain current for all countries of chargeability. I know uh, relatively recently, um, last year, we did have a a preference date for EB1 India. Apparently, based on what uh, Charlie Oppenheim is telling us, that's not going to be the situation in the near future.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. Um, I know we always try to keep these uh, uh, teleconference discussions uh, for the benefit of employers, and uh, and we share these hot, cutting-edge sort of issues and topics and updates. I know that starting for this fiscal year, which is starts, as we as Aaron just explained, October 1st um, every year and ter- gets over, uh, which is considered a fiscal year FY22 for the USCIS, which started on October 1st of 2021, Uh, which was just a couple, a few days ago for, you know, when you're listening to the seminar, um, what we're seeing is that we were expecting a much larger movement, but we have explained what happened, why there's been uh, short-term and long-term predictions that were very different than what we all had been told and were expecting. Uh, And I know many of you as employers and employees are familiar with non-immigrant issues, but not as familiar with a lot of the nuances dealing with uh, movement of priority dates. How does this really work? How does the whole process, you know, why do move, dates move? It's simply based on supply and demand. And so we figured that it made a lot of sense at the multi-law firm to explain how this is expected to work, what to expect in the short term and long term, and to continue to keep you uh, educated so that you feel empowered and enlightened with respect to U.S. immigration law topics. That has been the goal of the Muti Law Firm right from the day we started 27-plus years ago, back in May of 1994, and we continue with our goal to educate, empower, and enlighten you so that you don't feel alone along that long, dark journey of U.S. immigration law, that you feel you have the support of an incredible knowledgeable, experienced team of immigration lawyers and staff ready to help you as employers and as employees with your immigration processing. So on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, Chris Dreinen, our senior attorney, myself, Sheila Moosey as your president and CEO, and all of us at the Moosey Law Firm, we want to thank you for joining us today for this discussion, and we hope that we can continue to help you Your business, your employees, and their families with respect to all immigration issues. Thank you for joining us. Have a good afternoon. Bye bye.
0: This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm. How to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.